This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Susie McKee Charnas, who died on January 2nd, 2023, at the age of 83, was a novelist and short story writer focusing on fantasy and science fiction. Over a career that began in 1974 with her first novel, Walk to the End of the World, she wrote 11 novels and several short stories, winning both the Hugo and Nebula Awards for Best Short Stories. She is best known for her tetralogy of novels, The Holdfast Chronicles, beginning with the aforementioned Walk to the End of the World and concluding in 1999 with The Conqueror's Child. She came to my attention via Carla Tinella, then of KPFA's Women's Department, who alerted me to the then up-and-coming author writing about feminist issues in a field that was still very much dominated by men. Her second novel, Mother Lines, which featured no male characters at all, was decades ahead of its time. I interviewed Susie McKee Charnas very early in my career at the World Fantasy Convention in Berkeley over Halloween weekend 1981. At the time, she'd published three novels, including her now classic fantasy, The Vampire Tapestry. A lot has changed since 1981, and the interview also serves as a time capsule, both in terms of my questions and her answers, and in regard to feminist writing and publishing. The interview aired once shortly after the recording, and now airs a second time 40 years later. It was digitized, remastered, and edited on January 4th, 2023. Susie McGee Charnas, how did you get interested in writing science fiction? I had been a steady reader of the stuff when I was a kid, and I, um, when I finally got around to doing my own work, and I had a story to tell. Actually, I stole my people from other places, not from science fiction, but from other sources, literary mostly. And I had them knocking around in my head for years and years and years, and I was trying to write them and trying to write them and trying to write them, and I tried to write them as a political novel set in a I think a West African country is what I was going to do. And then in a Jamaican-type island. And that wasn't any good. And instead, I, in fact, I went to Africa with the Peace Corps, partly because I thought, well, I should learn to look at other societies because I'm going to write this kind of thing maybe, and I should know how to do it. And then I tried to do it as a Western. didn't work. It was really a lousy book. I sent that one to Doubleday, and thank God they rejected it. I was saved. So I don't have to blush for that. It's gone. It's disappeared someplace. And then I finally figured out that what I needed to do to let these characters do what they wanted to do, what they had in them, was to make a world that was tailored to them. And I knew how to do it because I had read lots and lots of SF when I was a kid. Lots and lots and lots. That and girl and horse stories. That's what I read when I was was a youngster. So I, um, I set up this whole world that was built around this religion that was about, um, dope and trees and some other things. And it was a wonderful book that nobody could read but me. It was in t- totally in code. Only I knew what all the words meant that I'd made up. It was ghastly. It was really a disaster. And when I reread that, reread it and rewrote it and just changed it all completely, it turned it to walk to the end of the world. I was very fortunate that I was able to pull it through that phase. Judy Lynn Del Rey at Del Rey Books, she bought it immediately? Yeah, what happened was she had just come there from Analog. She'd been editing for Analog, and she had just taken over. I think it was her second or third day there. And she had no list. So she was looking for books, and in comes this walk to the end of the world from nobody you ever heard of. 
and I was visiting in town, I called home, and my dad had gotten a letter from her for me. That is, she sent a letter home to me where I wasn't anymore, saying, yes, I want your book. So I just trotted over and saw her at her office, and she said, yeah, give me, it's terrific. This is an unsolicited manuscript. That gives hope to people out there that they can just send in that manuscript and it will... One correction. It was unsolicited in the sense that nobody asked me for it. But when I had finished the manuscript, I went and read books about how do you market books, and they said, write a letter of inquiry. So I wrote a letter of inquiry, and I sent it out to about 15, 20 publishers. And Judy Lynn was one who wrote back and said, sure, we'll take a look. So in that sense, it wasn't exactly slush pile. I mean, it didn't come over the transom, as they say. But she had never heard of me, and, you know, it was not it was not asked for or contracted. Had you been involved in any way, shape, or form with the uh, science fiction or fantasy gestalt? We're sitting here at the World Fantasy Convention at the Claremont Hotel right now. Did you have any contact with any of these folks? Uh, had you ever seen Judy Lynn from a distance? I was a real snotty kid, very intellectual and full of myself. And at some point, I remember hearing that there was a science fiction convention somewhere in New York. And I thought, well, maybe I should go down and take a look. And then I thought, nah, they're not going to be my kind of people. I didn't know anything about it. I had forgotten even that. So that when I published Walk, and all of a sudden, somebody said, why don't you come to the science fiction convention? I got a letter saying, please come. I was astonished. I had forgotten that there were such things. And I walked into, well, you know what I walked into. <laughs> it, was, yes. it was the 1976 science fiction convention in Kansas City. The Shriners were leaving the hotel and we were coming in. And I want to tell you, it was incredible. It was an incredible scene. I had never seen people with, you know, little antenna on their heads and wings on their backs and walking around with fur booties and stuff. It was great. I couldn't believe it. So that was my first contact with that was through the Worldcon. And I've I've attended all of them since. And some of these, this is my second fantasy con. And by that time you were published. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The other thing about the conventions, I mean, aside from the fantastic aspect, is that it gives you instant colleagues. I mean, there you are, a lonely little writer. You've been sitting at your typewriter, tap, 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 and you walk into this world, and there are people who say, hi, come up to the Cephla suite, and, you know, sit and drink, and this is this is Norman Spinrad, and this is Joanna Russ, and, and you sit there with your mouth hanging open, and some of these people say, I read your work. It's pretty good. And right away, you have friends and people who know what you're doing and what you're trying to do, people you can talk to, people who give you advice, sometimes good advice, sometimes bad advice, but they know what the questions are anyway about publishing and about surviving in this world. And it's extremely important. And it's a kind of an advantage that those of us in the field have over, I think, all other fiction writers, because I don't know of any other genre that has this sort of thing going on. Westerns, to some degree, has it, but... Those aren't put on by the readers, though. No, no, they're not. They're not. And the thing about, especially the science fiction conventions, is they're mounted by the fans. So you walk into the situation where you are a guest of all these loony people who run around and read your books and tell you, I really loved what you did, please sign my book. And the feedback is sometimes even critically intelligent and useful to you. So it's, and, and the contact itself is really exciting. What kind of reception did Walk to the uh, Ends of the World get? Um, critical acclaim <laughs> and a very limited readership, I think which has very slowly spread since through the years. Uh, I think word of mouth really has done it more than anything else. Originally, I think there was a kind of... Since there were a number of women just coming into the field at that point, a number of them had read it, and they were all very excited, and we were excited about each other's work and remained so. But outside of that small group, I think it was very slow as a dispersion process. But there were some good comments from the, um, the critical press in the field, 
Of course, nothing from outside. Yeah. I mean, science fiction is totally ignored by the New York Times Book Review, except for one column every, what, three months is it now? And um, other, generally speaking, there's very little attention paid. But within the field, it was very heartening. And I would get letters from people whom I had heard of and whose work I read, and they would say, this is a good book, you know, keep going. And it was, it was very exciting for me. And then came Mother Lines. Then came Mother Lines, which was a little bit different situation. <laughs> um, that book went to one editor, a woman who at least had the, the, the guts to say to me, I can't publish this. It's all about women. If it were all about men, it would be a wonderful story. And I said, what's the trouble? <laughs> and she said, most of my readers are men, and they're not going to read this stuff. Now, as it happens, most of the readers of science fiction are not 16-year-old boys anymore. And there are more and more women reading in the field. So she was a little behind the times, but then she was paid to be conservative, not to be radical and, and take chances. And that was her job she was protecting, which I can understand and respect. I mean, I don't have to do that kind of thing. No. <laughs> so um, I found that it was hard to market that book in the field. And that was when I got myself an agent, matter of fact, because it was someone had written to me and said, I would love to be your agent. And I wrote back and said, nah, I'm having a good time. You know, if I need somebody, I'll call you. And then lo and behold, I needed somebody. And I called her and she got it sold to Dave Hartwell at Berkeley Putnam. But it was, it was interesting to see what happened. It took a year to sell that book. It took three months to sell Walk to the End of the World. And it took, what did it take to sell Tap? Oh, gee, I think that was, that was really sold sort of before it was finished because David Hartwell had seen um, the third section, the therapy part, and just blew his mind. He said, I want that! <laughs> I want everything that goes with it. So by the time I was finished, we, were, we marketed a little bit, and then we came back to David, and uh, he took it. It was good. Uh, how about charges that you're a rabid feminist writer? What do you say about those? That's fair enough on the face of it. Okay. I'm a rabid feminist writer. That is to say, the things that I write have the effect of making people feel that that's what I must be because I start from premises that are not the same as most people's. For example, in Vampire Tapestry, the women in the story are not swooning victims and you know, running away and screaming from the vampire. One of them in the beginning of the book puts a bullet in this guy. He picks the wrong victim and she lets him have it. And that kind of worries people. And Mother Lines is all about Amazons, and there are no men in the story at all, and that really upsets people a lot. But in fact, I mean, this is a wedding ring, and um, I live a really bourgeois life. What can I tell you? I have a little house and a husband and a car and a truck, and my dad lives next door. I've got two cats. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, he's a lawyer. He makes a, a nice living. We travel. We have, I have a couple of stepkids. They go to college. There is nothing, you know, there, there's nothing really um, on the edge about the way I live. On the other hand, I don't think I could both live it and write it at the same time. Now, I know someone who I think could be said to have done that or come close to it, and I have a lot of respect for it. That's Marge Percy. But most of us don't have the energy. You, know, you, you either do one or you do the other. So, yeah, in my head, I guess I'm just what you said and a lot of other things worse than that. I'm not necessarily throwing any, any kind of negative uh, connotation on it. For sure, not with KPFA's listeners, certainly. <laughs> with uh, Carla Tanella of KPFA standing right here staring at me. But I just throw that out on the grounds that uh, I know that it, it could conceivably scare people off from, from what's essentially very good books. And I would guess one of the astonishing things about Vampire Tapestry is it's freedom from sexism, complete freedom from sexism. The primary characters are women in a couple of the sections. 
the strong women, the psychologist in the part that was originally Unicorn Tapestries is a brilliant woman, and that's a brilliant section. And Wayland is, I don't want to use the word man, I don't... It's a bit of a problem. He's, Joanna, Joanna Russ wrote and said, you know, he's not a man. You're kidding people if you say he's a man. He's essentially asexual. I mean, he's just not really interested. He's interested in what animals are mostly interested in when they're not in heat, which is survival, because that's what he is. He is an animal kind of a creature. And um, I have to add, though, about the women in the story, what interested me when I'd finished it was that I had not only done people like Floria Landauer, the therapist, and people like Katja de Groot, the, the woman in the beginning who doesn't let herself get victimized, but I'd also written, if you'll remember, people like the kid who comes in and get, has her blood drunk and says, oh, wow, that's so groovy. I mean, everybody got in there. The teaching assistant who is really kind of a wimp and hasn't gotten herself loose from her problems with her parents yet. When you start writing stories in which you're able to treat women as real human beings, you find you don't have to make them all heroes. You can do the wimpy, simpy ones, and you can do the strong and terrific ones, and you end up with some kind of real picture of the real people you know in the real world. And any kind of distortion from that, whether you're doing everybody is wonderful and, you know, a terrific Tarzan Jane person. Well, Jane, not Tarzan. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Jane, if there were no Tarzan. Or the other thing, which is everybody's a wimp and a jerk, everybody female. Uh, either of those things are distortions that I think ruin stories. They ruin them for me. I can't read them. Vampire Tapestry was originally a short story, the first part. It's called The Ancient Mind at Work, and it was that was the first short thing I ever wrote. And I, I had... I'd been asked to write some short pieces, and I couldn't. And I said, I don't write short stories. And in, in fact, it turns out I don't write short stories. <laughs> I was right. But this thing came to me when I was, I was in the city, and I had seen the Dracula plays in New York. And I had really felt that they had missed the point. And I really wanted to do something of my own with it. And I took a number of things that happened on that trip and, they, and put them together into this story, which is about a vampire who makes a very bad mistake in his choice of victims, this academic vampire. When I had finished that story, I really thought I was done until people started saying to me, they said, I'd really like to see the vampire drink somebody's blood because he didn't let us see that in that story. So I thought about that a little bit, and I said to myself, well, yeah, I'd like to see that too, and everybody liked to see that, and people would pay money to see that, and somebody would surely capitalize on the ability to sell that if they could, and I had my second section of this book, which is about essentially this vampire being put on exhibition by an unscrupulous, exploitive-type person, who I think throughout the story, in a sense, represents predatory human beings, as opposed to this predatory animal, and is therefore, I think, a much more horrible monster, really, than Wayland is. Uh, did you, at that point, did you decide, well, I'm going to go whole hog and write a novel, and then come up with the therapy idea? No, I thought there's another section to this, and it's about art. That's how far off the beam I was at the time. There's something about art, and I was thinking, oh, what is it? There's a painter, there's something, and this person metamorphosed into this therapist. And I thought, ah, I see how it goes. He wants his job back, like any sensible person. He's invested all this time and energy into making this good spot in this college where he's teaching and doing very nicely. He wants his job back. Well, how's he going to get it back? They're not going to take him when he disappeared, dropped out of sight, and vanished for a month, unless somebody clears him and says it's okay. He had a nervous breakdown, but he's all right now. So off he went to the therapist. What happened there that was really uh, the first time this has ever happened to me, I think. I couldn't figure out how to get it, to set it up so that she could deal with the vampirism, which is what the fun was going to be. Because look, nobody knew what happened. 
He came to her as someone who had had a nervous breakdown and disappeared. That's all. She didn't know anything about it. So where was this vampirism going to come from for her to discuss? And I was sitting at the typewriter doing some dialogue between them, trying to find my way into this thing. And so help me, on the page it appeared. Dr. Whalen said, I seem to have this delusion that I am a vampire. There was the whole thing, including his strategy. Everything. His strategy was to say, I have this delusion. And later to say, I'm cured. It's wonderful. It's all fixed. Go back to his job. But that had worked itself out in my head while I was sleeping, shopping, cooking dinner, whatever the heck I was doing, because I didn't work it out. Now, occasionally that will happen, and that's what writers mean when they say characters take on a life of their own. He gave me the solution. And there I had what he was doing in that office and what she was going to have to deal with. And the fun of that story is watching her realize it's no delusion. She is based on anybody you know? Uh, she's not based on anybody I know because I've never been in therapy. And the only therapist I know is the the friend to whom I turned for some help, who was uh, someone I used to teach with, and to whom I said, look, I've got to write about a therapist and I don't know a damn thing about it. How am I going to do it? I don't know which way to turn. There's so many therapies. And I had taken psychology in school and they were ter terribly boring. It's all about rats running through mazes. Remember that? <laughs> so I didn't know where where to go for this. And she said, go and read Fritz Perls. Read about Gestalt therapy. It's easy and it's fun and it will give you at least a start. And it was great. It was wonderful stuff. I heartily recommend most of what is um, Gestalt therapy verbatim is, is the basic text. And um, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And it was perfect. It gave me exactly what I needed. As for the therapist, people I know tell me that the therapist is the therapist I would be if I were a therapist. I find this extremely flattering, I have to add. I think she's a hell of a good therapist. And if some people say, I'd like to go to his therapist. <laughs> and I say, I'm sorry, she's doing some other line of work. <laughs> yeah, she's probably uh, working on Dr. Frankenstein's got this delusion he built the monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Now, Vampire Tapestry has a very, very uh, sad history in terms of its publishing, which is that it came out in hardcover and luckily Carla Tanella got a copy of it and read some of it on the air and started people asking about it, but it was not available. What happened? It's actually a frustrating history, print history. When they bought it, it was supposed to be a regular hardback issue. And then they decided, no, they weren't going to do that, they being Simon & Schuster and Pocket Books. They were going to do a library edition, which means they had expected to sell to a number of, of libraries around the country, and that's all. They hardly even expected to have any bookstore sales. And so we've been limping along with 6,000 copies all winter, and there was going to be, I was told, at one point in May or so, there was going to be a reprint, and someone higher up in the company canceled the reprint order. So that didn't happen, and everybody's been hanging around waiting for this thing to come out in paper. And, of course, it got no advertising, got nothing. Absolutely zilch, zero now that it's come out in paperback, they're really trying to, I guess, make their advance back. <laughs> so I'm getting a little help from Pocket Books because somebody must have figured otherwise they weren't going to make their money. And I'm not going to take the blame for that. So, you know, they'll have to really work on this to get this book sold. You had mentioned that this had been reviewed on the front page of the Los Angeles Times book review. Why didn't this prompt those people to think about issuing it as a hardback again? It's very hard to get a hardback reissued at all. It's expensive to do them, especially if you're talking about a reissue of limited numbers. Great big numbers, then each unit is, is cheap. Smaller numbers, each unit is expensive. 
when they knew that they would eventually get around to the paperback. And so they'll just hang on for that because they don't care whether the media rights are sold or not because the media rights belong to me, not to Simon and Schuster, see. So they were not interested. I'm still hoping for, um, I hope a TV sale. I would really like to see a TV series made, of, made out of this. Not a, an endless series, but a mini-series because I think it lends itself, although I didn't write it that way. People say, did you write this for TV? It's in five very neat sections. And I say, no, I wrote it in sections because that's the way it began. And when I reached the last section, all of a sudden everything tied up together. And I saw that, in fact, I had been writing a novel, and it is a novel. People also say, is there going to be a sequel? And I say, no, there is not. It is a novel. A novel is a completed work, and that's what it is. You know all about this vampire that I can tell you. And probably all that you want to know, I think. Maybe there are a few things that you'd like to know, but I'm not going to tell them to you. <laughs> You'll have to imagine them for yourself. Like, are there any others? Well, he doesn't know if there are. He doesn't know, and my bet is maybe... Ooh, I think not. I think of him as kind of um, a, a unique mutation from some some dinosaur egg. I mean, to me, he's a saurian. He's, he's essentially not a mammal, even. Although he's, 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 over the centuries, he's changed to become more and more, and more like us. But I really see him as, as single, unique, and very different from us. The thing I usually say about him is he's like an intellectual saber-toothed tiger. And uh, <laughs> what, he, what he's doing is he's surviving as best he can, and he's adapting. He doesn't like it much. He doesn't like us much. He's not romantically inclined at all. He doesn't yearn for our company. Although he is essentially lonely, the way anything would be that was all by itself. That's, that's part of the problem. But the story is largely about his discovering what the limits of his humanity are. And they're very narrow limits, because he isn't really human. He has to overlap with us enough to be able to hunt us successfully, the way any hunter has to overlap with its prey, to some degree. But when he becomes too much like us, he's in danger. He can't survive. And the book is about discovering what those limits are and what they mean. What books do you have coming up? Well, I'm working on something now that is... It's a real stinker to describe. All I can tell you is it seems to be about a painter, the French Revolution, a land fraud in the Southwest, and reincarnation. Now, all those things do come together. Honest. <laughs> they really do. And I'm working right now on the nexus where everything comes to one, one point and all untangles itself. Uh, it's it's also about hostages. Well, it's it's about a, a lot of things, but it does seem to mix together and work out into something I think is going to be a pretty good book. Before the interview began, you mentioned uh, a, a third book in the uh, Walk to the End of the World series and that you had written an outline, and that's where it lay. Do you have any idea of thinking about picking it up eventually? See, my problem is I don't know how to pick it up. I think to myself, well, should I go back and look at that outline and maybe see if I can use it after all? or should I just accept the fact that the outline is the coffin in which that book is buried, throw the outline away, and just wait until I hit, what, 70 or 80, and I'm old enough and wise enough to write this book? The third volume of that series, it's War and Peace of the Battle of the Sexes. I don't know if I can do it. I mean, that's a tremendous piece of work. And I, either I can or I can't. And we'll find out. And if I can't, you know, frankly speaking, if I can't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Nobody's indispensable. Someone is going to write the book that will deal with those concepts, whatever they are, and resolve them. Because there are enough people writing now so that someone's going to cover it. I'm not worried about, oh my goodness, if I don't do this, what will happen? Well, nothing will happen. Somebody will fill the gap. I'd like to be the one to do it, but I don't know that I can. 
I like to think that when I get, maybe when I hit 50, I'll have enough experience and enough wisdom, because that's what it's going to take to tackle that book, but I'm not there yet. I want to touch on something completely different. Uh, you would all, you mentioned a long time ago, about an hour ago before this interview began, that you were on the Nebula Awards Selection Committee. One of the things that's been happening on this program is that we've been discussing the current state of science fiction, and from the point of view of, of the publish of the uh, bookseller and publisher, there's a decline. From the point of view of the reader, specifically, I look at myself as a sample reader here. I look at 1981 as a dreadful year. Now, you've read a lot of garbage and hopefully some decent stuff in order to make your selection. Have you come across anything? any science fiction novel that would be eligible for a nebula in 1981 that you could go out and recommend? Ooh. Well, unfortunately, I think the only thing that's pretty likely to be brought up by the jury as, as one that's going to need, need our boost to get on the ballot for this year uh, is likely to be a book that was produced outside the field. Now, this happened last year also, uh, a book called Mockingbird got on the ballot, uh, although I think, in fact, it got on without help from the jury. But it was a book from outside, and it was a strong contender, or people thought so, for a while. And the book I'm thinking of this year is Ridley Walker, which you may have heard of, uh, which is going to need help because it's in hardback. It's not getting very wide distribution, I don't think. And most of the, the people who determine these things are probably not getting around to reading it because it's from outside, among other things. But I think it's an interesting piece of work and probably should go on. Uh, from within the field, at the moment, there's nothing I see that isn't already getting enough attention from the balloting, the re the regular nominating procedure. Do you, can you recall offhand what the leaders are in the? Uh... Oh gosh. Part of it is that I've read a number of things in the this year, and the best that I I think has come out of essentially been sequels mm -hmm. that. In any other year, I would think I wouldn't even talk about nominating or a book like Divine Invasion by Phil Dick that is lesser Phil Dick. Mm -hmm. And I keep hoping that there's something there that I don't know about, that nobody knows about, a book, uh, a vampire tapestry, or to, to use an example, uh, Kindred by Octavia Butler, which came and went without anybody knowing but was a real sleeper. Are there any sleepers other than this Ridley Walker book? I haven't seen anything, and that's the truth. I really haven't. Nothing that hasn't already attracted a certain amount of notice. A couple of books like Stallman's book. Uh, I don't know whether The Orphan is up this year or the second one in that it series. Yeah. That kind of thing is the sort of thing we're talking about, which yeah. normally don't get a lot of attention. But in fact, those books were noticed. And it may be that, that there's just more notice of, of good stuff going around because there's so much junk. That, yeah, Gene Wolfe's books are, you know, they're on there. There's no problem with getting those through. The function of the jury is to make sure that something that is very good that hasn't received any notice doesn't get overlooked. And so far, everything that should be attended to, I think, has been given enough notice. And we'll know more about that in the spring when the ballot actually gets fined down to a few things and we see what gets dumped and say, uh-uh, that belongs back on there and put it back on. But no, I wish I could say there's something really super, rush right out and buy it and get it, but I haven't seen it yet. Susie McKee Charnas continued to work steadily after 1981, but she wrote no more novels after 1999 the short stories continued to be published. None of her works were adapted for television or film, though she did adapt the vampire tapestries for the stage in 2001. The Nebula Award for 1982 was won by No Enemy But Time by Michael Bishop, 
Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban was not one of the finalists. You've been listening to an interview with the late Susie McKee Charnas, who died on January 2, 2003, at the age of 83. The interview was recorded over Halloween weekend 1981 at the Claremont Hotel in Berkeley, California. The whole Fast Chronicles, The Vampire Tapestry, and her other novels are all available either in print or via ebook. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 